I have entitled our message, Lessons from a Journey to Samaria. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 6 here in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. And I want to take our time with some of the things that are here and maybe digress a little bit here and there. Talk about some issues that are raised by this passage. A while back, S.D. Gordon made a powerful statement. He said, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that man can understand. Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that man can understand. That is such a marvelous thought. And it is really the, the theme of the Gospel of John. It's really what we've been discovering chapter by chapter all the way through in our studies here together. And we're going to continue to see that. We see in this chapter some very wonderful qualities about Jesus Christ as a man, some very relatable qualities, and some very instructive qualities as well that we can apply in our own lives. So I'd like to begin by reading from verse 1 down to verse 6, and we'll launch into it. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. As we look at this passage here, verse 1 through 6, there are four things that stand out to me. One is the place of God's timing, both in Scripture and in the life of Jesus, the place of God's timing. A second is the place of baptism, the place of water baptism in Scripture and in our Lord's ministry. The third is the place of Samaria in the Scripture. Place of Samaria. It's kind of a thing we bump into a lot in the Bible. And I felt it would be good to take some time to talk about this whole issue of Samaria and the Samaritans rather than rushing headlong into the account of Jesus and the woman at the well, rather to set it all up and get ourselves into the history of the thing and understand really what's going on before we get there to that portion. So I want to take some time with that. And then in verse 6, we have the place of Christ's humanity, both in his ministry and in Scripture, and it's just a wonderful thing to contemplate that. So God's timing, the place of baptism, the place of Samaria, and the place of Christ's humanity. But in verse 1 down through verse 3, we see this issue of the place of God's timing. Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John... Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Samaria. Take a look at your map. We have Judea on the map. You see it? There's that circle drawn in by hand. And right below is Judea. At the bottom of the circle, you see Jerusalem, sort of right there. And then Judea is that area below it. You remember Jesus had departed out of Jerusalem into Judea and he was baptizing and so was John the Baptist and they were very near to each other. But now we read that when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more disciples than John, he departs from Judea and he moves north 
toward Galilee. You see Galilee up there toward the top of the map? So he moves from Judea up through that area toward Galilee. Now, Jesus' departure from Judea was all about the fact that he was committed to God's timing. What we're seeing here is Jesus understands, whether by his omniscience or by someone telling him, that the Pharisees are aware that he has now a growing following and he's baptizing more people than John. He is concerned about the Pharisees and their impressions. So because he is committed to God's timing, he realizes that this unnecessary attention that is being stirred up is not good at this point in his ministry. And if he didn't do something about it, it would lead to the wrong ending. And that would be the ending of his life, which would come at the wrong time. If you read in the Bible, you see this thing over and over with Jesus, that he's committed to God's timing. For example, when he fed the 5,000, at the end of the day, the Bible tells us in Matthew 14, 22, I'll read it to you. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And then John fills us in on some details as to why he did that. Why he sent his multitudes away, he himself goes up alone to pray over to the side, sends the multitudes away, sends the disciples away, and he is left alone. Why? Well, there have been about 25, 30,000 people there that he had fed that day. The emotions were running very high, no doubt because of the preaching and because just the miracle of seeing so many people fed from just a handful of food, literally. So John fills us in on some details that, that uh, Matthew doesn't give us. If you turn in your Bible, not very far, just to John chapter 6 here, to verse 14. John six fourteen says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived... They were about to come and take him by force and make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself all alone. That's why he sent the disciples away. That's why he sent the multitudes away and went to be alone. They were going to come in and swoop in with the force of the mob and make him king. Well, that would have just ruined everything. And he understood that, so he made his move. He was sensitive to God's timing. That was just the worst possible thing that could have happened. And so it was a very crucial moment, and he reacted accordingly. In John 7, if you turn over there to John 7, to verse 8, they're all getting ready to go up to the feast. And he tells them, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. Why? For my time has not yet fully come. His time when it was fully come would mean his death. He is so sensitive, so committed to seeing everything happen on God's time clock. So that in this case of the Pharisees getting riled up and, and becoming very attentive to the fact that his following is growing, especially because John had announced that Jesus was greater than him, that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the fact that they were giving this undue attention 
if Jesus didn't respond accordingly, it would lead to an ultimate frustration, which is how it all ends up in the end. An untimely ultimate frustration, which would lead to an ultimate untimely death. So that Jesus knew he was, yes, going to die. He was born to die. And he knew the death by which he would die. But nothing was so important to him as making sure that it all happened God's way and not man's way. That is why he departs from Judea and goes right up the map into the area of Galilee. Because he is sensitive to God's timing. And he didn't want to have the Pharisees and the scribes and all of them come to their conclusions too early, which would lead to his death. And this is something that I see as absolutely crucial for us as Christians. Are you sensitive to God's timing in your life? I think one of the hardest things at times to deal with is just that. Here, God is working, God's moving, and things are happening. Sometimes good things, sometimes bad things. Things happen with us, things happen with our friends. And we have to be sensitive to God's timing for us. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for Frank and Mary and Billy and Biff. God has a plan for everybody. And we need each one to be sensitive to that plan. And I see that in our Lord's life. So much we could say on that, but he was committed to God's timing. There's another thing I see here. And that is he did not expose himself to unnecessary danger. We've talked about the fact that with these people he was dealing with, he knew he was facing ultimately some kind of death at their hands. So the movement of Jesus is intended to avoid the design of the Pharisees, which would be to ultimately kill him. So he withdraws from the multitudes and the area around Jerusalem to go to the quieter province of Galilee so he can enter into a quieter lifestyle for that season of his life, yet continue to fulfill God's plan. He avoids unnecessary danger. He takes the necessary precautions. And what is the lesson here? I think it's obvious. Sometimes I think we're so spiritual, we just pray and let it all go from there. And we think that's the most spiritual thing to do. Well, if I don't just trust God in this matter and leave it with Him, if I do anything else, that would be unspiritual. If I didn't trust Him just to keep me safe now, then it would seem to me that I would be playing the coward. When in reality, to trust God and pray and do something about the situation at the same time is both the most spiritual and the wisest thing to do, and even in a sense the bravest. Sometimes I think we get this martyr complex that either God's going to just let us go, or absolutely God's going to take care of us, and then we become foolish. We need to take steps to protect ourselves When there comes a time when we realize there's a time to live and work, and there's a time to suffer and die, and we need to take measures to keep ourselves safe. When I was a kid, some of you may remember this, when I was a kid living here in Southern California, nobody locked their front door. Nobody locked their front door, ever. You go visit a neighbor, you just walk in. Hello, you know, I'm here. Oh, hi, come on in, you know. Ladies making a cake or a salad in the kitchen, and it's kind of a stereotype, 60s thing, you know how it was. Anyway, nobody locked their doors, but no smart thinking person today would go to bed and not lock their doors. You go to a hotel, there's signs, make sure you lock the door, and there's a bolt on the sliding door, right? 
And then there's a bar that flips down on the sliding window as well. And then you turn on the TV and there's a special message on a special video that says, we are not responsible if you get killed in the parking lot. You know that kind of a thing. No, I, I were in a hotel in Miami and there was a brochure. Oh, how nice. Isn't this lovely, dear? Oh, yes. And then this frightening brochure that had a list of about 22 things you had to do to stay safe and live while you were there at the hotel. That's because we live in a dangerous world and it seems that we need to be both spiritual and wise and take care of ourselves. Jesus was like that and He took the measures that were prudent to take care of Himself in the face of danger. So let's be wise. So we see the place of God's timing in the Scriptures. Let's go on and talk about the place of baptism in the Scriptures. Here Jesus is out there and people are coming to salvation and being baptized. And one of the first things you find in John chapter 4 is it says Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. And then you read this interesting statement, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples were doing it. This is worth thinking about for a while. It's worth slowing down and even digressing with it. Because the thing you see here immediately is that baptism has a subordinate place in Christ's ministry. He himself does not baptize. It is important. That is obvious because all the people coming to be saved are being baptized. But the fact that he does not baptize says it is, yes, important, but not the primary concern. It is a subordinate concern. Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Isn't that interesting? John was known as the Baptist. But more and more people are now being baptized through the ministry of Jesus than even John. And yet he himself does not do it, telling us how at once important it is, and yet it is a subordinate concern to the overall thrust of his main mission. And as you read this, you are led almost irresistibly to this conclusion that baptism is not the principal part of Christianity. It is not the main thing. Salvation is. Otherwise, we would never read what we read here. Now, you might be wondering, and I do want to just mention this, why didn't Jesus baptize? Maybe you're wondering that. Let me give you a few thoughts just, just purely to think about. One is that he was applying himself more to preaching work, which Paul, you know, said, even Paul the Apostle said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He even went as far as to say this, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Interesting, huh? So there is the idea that Jesus would apply himself to the more important work, which don't get bogged down dunking people, get out about the business of saving people so they can get dunked in the water later. You see the difference. So there's that idea. Another idea is that he would put honor upon his disciples by empowering and employing them to do it and thus train them for further services. Get them interacting with the people that God had called them to minister to. Further, if he had baptized some himself, you know what would have happened. Those people would have gotten puffed up. They would have had a different walk from then. And if you came along and said, hey, who baptized you? Well, I, I, it was Philip. Oh, I'm so blessed. Hey, sorry. I was baptized by Jesus. You'll never know what it was like. There's something different about me now. 
And people would get proud about it and look down on those who were not baptized by Jesus himself. And then there was the idea that he would reserve for himself the honor of baptizing with the Holy Spirit, as we find out in the book of Acts, and that he would then, one other thought, teach us that the effectiveness of the sacrament does not come from the hands of those that administer it, but from the hard attitude toward the God whom they are believing in. And that is an important thing, a very, very important thing. So, baptism has a subordinate place in Christ's ministry. Let me give you another thought here. As we look at this, we have to realize that baptism should be kept in its proper place today. In its proper place. Now that would be to first of all say baptism should never be neglected. Never. Jesus said to do it. It's Jesus that ordained it. But it must be kept in its proper place. It should be administered to those who come to believe upon Christ and are born again. That's the proper place of it. That's what we see here. Another similar thought would be this, that baptism should not be unduly exalted. And this is where we need to spend some time. You see, baptism was never meant to be exalted to the place where we find it in many circles today in the church. Never. Jesus never meant it to be that way. You see, baptism has a benefit, and the benefit mainly revolves around the manner in which it is used. It is to be administered to those who believe on Christ, who are capable of that kind of belief and understanding. It is the outward certification of an inward reality. It is a public witness that you've given your life to Christ. It's all those things. And that is the proper place. But it was never meant to be some kind of spiritual charm. Now, if you've been around here for a long time, that is obvious. But many of you have not. And the reality is this. There are all kinds of Christians around us in the church that take the view that baptism is, in fact, some kind of spiritual charm all by itself. And there are those that exalt it too high and put the wrong focus on it. For example, there are those that say you must be baptized by their denomination or your baptism wasn't official. Some people ask the question, well, is it okay if I'm not baptized by a pastor? Well, sure, the issue is that you believe on Christ and then obey and be baptized. That's the issue. And then there are those that say, well, no, the issue is you've got to have a deacon or an ordained minister uh, baptize you or it's not any good. And then there are those that will say, well, even that isn't good enough because now that you've moved and you're coming into our denomination, we do not recognize the baptism of that denomination, whether it's by an ordained minister or a deacon from that denomination, because we are the real denomination. And if you want to get into this denomination, you've got to have our baptism. So sorry, that thing is expired. You're going to have to have a new one over here. Then there are those, they're called the Jesus-only people. Have you ever heard of them? They're the ones that believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are really just different manifestations of Jesus and that really there is no Trinity, there is only Jesus. One Jesus with three manifestations and thus, when you baptize, if it's to be official and to be effective, it must be done in the name of Jesus. If it isn't done in the name of Jesus, then it's not right. So, what do you do with that? Well, one safe way is to say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus and dunk them down. 
but on the way and the Father <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. So, you know, sometimes these people, they like to lurk around the edges of crowds and sidetrack people. They do it at Harvest Crusades, Billy Graham Crusades, anywhere something legitimate is going on. There's always someone with a plaque and wants to pull you off immediately into some extreme as your newborn babe in Christ. So if those people are hanging around, the Jesus-only people, and they say, were you baptized in the name of Jesus? You can say, well, yes, I was. It was the first thing I heard as I was going down to the water. Just leave the rest out. They don't need to know it. And then, and I want to spend some time with this because you'll deal with it with your relatives. You may have dealt with it yourself coming along the way. You may be wondering how it fits into your life now with God, how it fits into your salvation, and that is the issue of infant baptism. Infant baptism. And just to leave a distraction out of your mind, I'll deal with it up front. When we um, dedicate infants and babies up here, and young children, we're not expecting some magic charm to happen from it. We're praying for the souls of these individuals. We believe in the power of prayer. So we also believe in praying for the parents. And one of the things that I love to do is sneak up on the parents while they're up here. And if I know that one of them is wayward, just sort of move in that direction for a while. And now, Lord, touch him. Mightily God. Really do it, Lord. And let him understand the responsibilities of raising this child that you, God, have given him, Lord. And the guy, beads of sweat, you know, break out. But it's a time of praying for the parents and for the child. It's a time of prayer is what it is. And we believe God answers prayer. So it's a wonderful, precious time. That is why we bring children and dedicate them to the Lord. That's all that is. It's a time of praying for them. But we do not suppose that because they were brought up here and prayed for, that that immediately certifies that they are saved and they're now members of the body of Christ. We don't suppose that for a minute. We are praying that when they grow up and come to the age of accountability, they will make that decision. That's why I always pray, always, always, unless it's just for variety, one after the next. You know, I don't want to sound like a broken dedication prayer. But I always pray at the earliest age, Father, may this child come to know you, always. Because I wish that would have happened with me. So we pray as we bring them up for their salvation. But there are those that baptize infants. Infant baptism. It's usually by the mode of sprinkling because it's dangerous to immerse an infant. The exact uh, purpose of it differs from group to group, but it almost always implies that the child receives some spiritual blessing by the act, if not full salvation. Now, who practices infant baptism? Well, you may be interested to note, in case you don't have this kind of background, that infant baptism is an ordinance of the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, as well as most of the denominations that withdrew from Rome during the Protestant Reformation, and that would include Lutherans, Anglicans, and Methodists. These denominations baptize infants and confess that children are thereby imparted with certain spiritual blessings. So that's kind of a general statement about who does it and what they're expecting. But let's get more specific. And I'm not into bashing these people. I'm just giving you a report on what they believe. And what I'm going to read you now is 
word for word from the, their source of what they believe on this. And that is the Roman Catholic Church. This is from the Catholic Information Service. They believe this about infant baptism. The church insists that infants be baptized as soon as possible, which is understood to mean at least within a month after birth. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the church gives baptism to infants, assuring them of membership in the church and of all the benefits that follow from this membership. The church gives even to infants this blessedness of rebirth in Christ to eternal life. In the case of infants, the necessary dispositions are supplied by the whole community of believing church, the believing church, including the parents and the godparents. In other words, infants are saved by the acts of the church which communicates her faith to them. The people around, the godparents, and all that, they're communicating their faith in Christ supposedly to the child. So that's what they believe. It's from the Catholic Information Service. Then Lutherans. By the way, some of the best people I know in life are Catholics. Some of the best people I know in life are Lutherans. And uh, what I could say about that. But here's what the Lutherans state. This is the baptism formula used by Lutheran pastors in baptizing infants. It goes like this. Being by nature sinners, infants as well as adults need to be baptized. Every child with God and is made a child of God and an heir of his heavenly kingdom through the baptism um, ceremony. So there, and there, that varies a lot from Lutheran church to Lutheran church. Infant baptism, you may be interested to note, is not taught in the New Testament. It's not there. For some, infant baptism is a doctrine by implication. So if you read the writings, you say, what do I read? Where do I go for this? Start poking around reading. They'll say, well, it's not really explicitly taught. It's there by implication. The main implication is you see five households in the New Testament that come to Christ. We must suppose and conjecture then that these households had infants and that the infants too were baptized and included in that. And the households that you find in the New Testament then are those of Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, and Stephanus. These are the households. Let's take a look at this. I doubt if you've ever gone through this before, so it's worth going through it now. In the case of Cornelius, I'll just give it to you. You don't have to turn anywhere. In the case of Cornelius, in the book of Acts in chapter 10, it is stated that those that gathered with him in the house were his kinsmen and near friends. He sent words that they were all present before God to hear all things that are commanded of you. That's what he said to Peter. And the Holy Spirit, you know, fell upon them as they heard the word. Now think about that. The Holy Spirit fell upon them as they heard the preaching of the word. If you read your Bible right, you will find out that the Holy Spirit only acts upon people in that way who believe, right? That's what he does. He acts upon and fills those people who believe on the name of Jesus Christ. So what you gather then from looking at that is that those that were there together and were capable of hearing the commands of God with a view to believing the way God commands to believe to be saved would have to be of the age to be able to understand all of that kind of preaching. And you understand that those who were saved and baptized with Cornelius were those who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, tiny infants cannot do that. It eliminates Cornelius as an example. 
and as a proof text for infant baptism. There is the uh, household of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And you find there that nothing is said about infants in this passage. And further, Lydia is a great example of an industrious businesswoman. And you find out by looking at her life, she's a busy merchant woman. And it is doubtful that she had tiny babies. And there is no evidence at all in that passage for infant baptism. You have to force it into it. One of the favorite ones is the Philippian jailer in his household, and that's in Acts chapter 16 and verses 30 through 34, just for your reference. Passage clearly states that Paul the Apostle spoke the word of God to the entire household and that the entire household believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house, right? That's what it says. So you look at that and you realize this could not be said of infants again because they cannot believe. They don't even really know that they exist. The little tiny ones. What do you remember about when you were an infant? Think real hard. Not a thing. Not a thing. Whenever I meet someone who says, you know, I'm going to heaven, I say, why? Well, I was baptized as an infant. So I'll say, what was it like? (laughs) Must have really been something. It sets you up for eternity like that. What was it like? (laughs) Ah, you know, sort of slips my mind. I can't remember a thing about it. No, you can't. And you were unable to believe at that point. Therefore, you need to believe now. You need to repent of your sins and follow Christ. And then you need to be baptized in accordance with the Bible. There's the household of Crispus, Acts chapter 18. Those who were saved and baptized in this family were all believers, for we are told of this kind of thing happening, but it's not there. The household of Stephanus, nothing is actually said about infants being present or being baptized. 1 Corinthians 1.16, we are told that this household, interestingly enough, the entire household addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, and you could not really say of infants as precious and cute and cuddly as they are, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. It is very often just the opposite. The saints that own them have to addict themselves to the ministry of those kids, particularly changing diapers at all odd hours of the day and feeding them. It is a nonstop process, but it's from parent to child, not the reverse. So. You go through those five households and you have to come to the conclusion that it is not really fair to use those as examples of infant baptism. It has been well said that no one has the right to interject what is omitted from Scripture just to bolster subjectively a supposed doctrine and ignore the clear teaching of many other portions of the Word of God. That is definitely the case with baptism. Another thing you understand is that infant baptism is contrary to the New Testament teaching about baptism. The Bible says that all blessings of salvation are received through personal faith in Jesus Christ. We receive eternal life by personal faith. We become children of God by personal faith. We receive justification and peace with God through personal faith. We receive the Holy Spirit by personal faith. You must be of age, the age of reason and understanding, to go through that. But listen to this. Infant baptism implies that the church can impart salvation and blessing to whomsoever it pleases, regardless of the individual's will or faith. Think about that. 
So we arbitrarily, if we practiced it and believed it, assume that if we do this thing with water to this kid, this kid will be saved. Where does that place salvation? And in whose hands is salvation then placed? In the hands of the leaders of the church, which is so very, very wrong. Gets worse. Infant baptism then results in false security. It results in a false security. Multitudes of people baptized as infants grow up thinking they are going to heaven. And in reality, they have never been born again through personal faith in Jesus Christ. They're trusting in an infant baptism and maybe their church membership rather than Christ alone upon whom they have believed. That is a horrifying thing. Another thought that comes out of that is this. Infant baptism results in churches being peopled and populated by unregenerate members. Think about that. Churches being populated by unregenerate, non-born-again members. In some churches, the infant becomes a member immediately upon being baptized. In others, the infant is not yet considered a full member, but is admitted as a member in later years without having to show evidence of regeneration. Either way, infant baptism results in those churches being filled with members that are not truly saved. If you think about that long enough, then you begin to realize what is one of the chief causes of spiritual deadness in mainline denominations today. You ever wonder why so many mainline denominational churches are so desperately dead? It is because they bring babies into the world, they sprinkle them with water, and teach them from the time they're old enough to understand that they're saved because of the water ceremony, and the people grow up, see no need to turn from their sins and follow Christ, and, and be rescued by Him, and thus... The churches are populated by all of these unsaved people with false security and false assurance that think they're going to heaven and they're all going to hell. That is one of the most horrifying thoughts you could ever conceive of. And it all comes down to this, not rightly dividing the word of truth, not pouring over the scripture and coming to the proper conclusions, but accepting the traditions of men. Now, I have spent time with this because I know that many of you really have to face some conflicts in your life when you refuse to certify the infant baptism that's about to take place and your relatives simply don't understand and they really can get heavy with you about it. The best response is to be very, very loving and say, you know, I can really appreciate your good intentions and caring for your child according to what the traditions that you have received. And I am all for a wonderful, loving attitude of caring for your child. But maybe some of the traditions you've received are not in the Bible, and I would love to just sit down and go through some of the Scriptures and talk about it with you and as to why I've come to my conclusions. And maybe you will then come to the same conclusion. That's the best approach to take. Rather than getting mad and arguing and storming out and saying, you just don't understand me. And they say, oh no, I do. You're in some kind of cult. <laughs> now all of us are really concerned about you. Uncle Harry and your father and I and all of us, we are really concerned. 
But these are the issues we find in the Bible. So here is Jesus out baptizing, baptizing even more people than John the Baptist. And yet we see this subordinate place of baptism, which speaks to all of these other issues. Place of God's timing, the place of baptism. Let's go now and talk about the place of Samaria. In the scriptures and in the life of Jesus, you come to John 4, and in verse 3 it says, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. There are a number of issues at hand here as you read these verses. One, as you see on your map, you find uh, Judea, you find Jerusalem and the small type at the bottom of that circle. You see the arrows going up. And you come at the second arrow to Sychar on the map. Sychar is an interesting place. Archaeologists have discovered that it is part of the um, original ancient settlement of Shechem. And whether Jesus was near some other modern-day town or whatever, the, the area there was the area of Shechem. So the first thing I see as Jesus goes to Sychar is this. As God, he had a history of rich activity there, Jesus being God. He's going to a place where he has had many, many events of very rich divine activity. Have you ever linked together all the things that happened at Sychar in the Bible? If you just chronicle through the Bible, what you find out is that it was here that God really first appeared to Abraham. Find that in Genesis. It was here that Jacob dwelt when he first returned from Padam Aram. It was here that the disgraceful event took place where the uh, men of Shechem defiled Dinah. Remember that? And then um, Jacob's sons got all upset and they tricked the men of Shechem and murdered them all. That was at Shechem. It was here at Shechem, I don't know if you remember this, that Joseph's father, Jacob, said to him, listen, I want you to go check on your brothers and see how they're doing with our flocks. And he went down and ended up at Shechem, and that's where they were, Jacob having no idea that he would not see that son of his again for a number of decades. That was Shechem. All of this activity at Shechem. It was here when Israel took possession of the land of Canaan that you had one of the cities of refuge where you could go if there was an accident and you were being unfairly accused or in jeopardy of your life. City of refuge right here. It was here that Joshua, at the end of his ministry, gathered together all of the tribes for the last time. It was here that the bones of Joseph were buried and the rest of the patriarchs. It is an amazing place when you think about it, looking at it from a biblical perspective. You remember when Solomon died and Rehoboam gathered the people together, and up until that time they had been one united kingdom? That place where he gathered them together was Shechem. It was at Shechem in this area, in this neighborhood, that Rehoboam said, against the counsel of the older men, taking the counsel of the younger men, my father chastised you with whips and took taxes from you. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions and I'm going to raise your taxes. And you remember that was unbearable to the people and it permanently split the kingdom of Israel. Remember that? That was right here at Shechem. So as you read here, why does it say he needed to go through Samaria? There's a lot of reasons. As God, as he's moving along, he had a lot of rich history of divine activity right there. 
Finally, close by Shechem was the city of Samaria itself and the two hills of Ebal and Gerizim, where the solemn blessings and cursings were recited after Israel entered the land of Canaan. And that's in Joshua 8. So you see all this rich activity there. You could not find a more interesting neighborhood to travel to if you looked all over the world. So here goes Jesus. He's leaving. He's traveling up to Sychar, to this area around Shechem. And as he sat down at the well as a weary traveler, I can only imagine all of the events that were moving through his mind as he began to rest at that well. As God, he had a history of rich activity there. Let me give you another thought. As a Jew... In going to this place, he was ignoring the prejudice of his people in a big way. You see, if you look down at John, John chapter 4, verse 9. Jesus is here with the woman, and we'll get to that. The woman of Samaria says, The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Here's a footnote. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Do you realize Jews literally went out of their way to avoid Samaritans? I mean, literally. Look at your map. You see where Jerusalem is? You've seen it already now. You know right where it is. See it? Well, you have the aerials that go straight up to Sychar, and then they basically almost go straight up to the Sea of Galilee. See that up there? The arrow, the final arrow, stops at Tiberias, which is a city there even to this day on the Sea of Galilee. It's almost a straight shot up. But notice, to the right of that, there are those curved, broken lines that go around and they pass over. If you notice carefully, the River Jordan, the line moves east and it goes up along through the valley there, right along the east side of the River Jordan, and then it comes back across the River Jordan, and then it curves and goes on up to Tiberias. You see that? That line is a rough, bear in mind rough, (laughs) idea of the um, route that you could take also to go to Galilee. Those are the only two ways to get there. The one on the right obviously is much harder and much longer. That is the route that the serious Orthodox Jew would take to go to Galilee much longer, much harder. Why take it? Because they had this intense prejudice against the Samaritans. The only reason a Jew, a devout Jew, would ever take the straight shot up to Galilee would be if he absolutely had to, for some peculiar reason, get to Galilee as quickly as possible. But even then, they would often use the reason of not going that way because it was significant enough to take the time to go the right way in their minds. With that in your mind, as you come and read in John 4, 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. That is one of the oddest things you could read. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Well, as he goes to Samaria, you understand... He is ignoring the prejudice of his people. Why was this prejudice existent? And I'm taking time with this because you're going to pass back and forth across Samaria all your life as you read the Bible. Might as well understand it someday. Then it'll make more sense to you what's going on in John chapter 4. Why this animosity? I've wondered about that for the longest time. Turn in your Bible to 2 Kings to chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. Verse 24. 
Now, as you come to 2 Kings 17.24, what you're looking at when you read the king of Assyria, then the king of Assyria, brought people. This is the beginning, or actually it's in the middle of one of the first organized empires in the history of the world. An interesting thing happened with Assyria. They were going along as a very, very tiny little clump of people. Very insignificant. All of a sudden, as different tribes and different peoples came tromping across their land and stomping them and conquering them, all of a sudden in history, they begin to get this attitude, we're sick of this. We're sick of being conquered. And the next thing you know, they emerge as the most well-equipped, skilled warriors on the face of the earth, and suddenly they begin to strike back at everybody around them, and they begin to expand and expand and expand, and they end up mobilizing and developing the first organized empire on earth. And all the others follow. So you find that around um, 800 B.C., right around in there, they're in their prime. And as they're coming to their prime of power, they come into this area known as Samaria, right there on your map, and they conquer the Jewish people. And it says the king of Assyria then brought people from Babylon and all these different places and placed them in the cities of Samaria, notice, instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so, let's just stop right there for a minute. The reason they did that is because when they conquered a people, they felt that if they took the original inhabitants out of the land and deported them and brought others back, still there would be some that were originally there, that they would so break up their unity that they could never rise again to power to throw off the yoke that had conquered them. That's the reason they deport people, and that's the reason they import people. So they bring in all these people from these other lands they had conquered to populate the area. Now you have people living in the area that are not Jewish, understand? So, here's what happens, verse 25. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, look at this, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. (laughs) This is one of those peculiar things that happened in the Old Testament. Suddenly lions are showing up and killing people. So they get all upset about this. I suppose all of us would. If it happened to you, you'd get upset. If you were killed by a lion, you'd be mad about it. You couldn't tell anyone because you'd be dead. But in verse 26, so they spoke to the king of Assyria. It must have been a very bad problem. And the nations, they said, whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. They felt that each land had a God. So you report to that God and pray to that God and he'll take care of you in that land. So they said, the people in the cities of Samaria, they don't know the rituals of the original God of the land. Therefore, he's mad and he's sending lions among them. And indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded them, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there. Send back a Jewish priest and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Teach them about Jehovah, the one true living God. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Then we read this interesting thing. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own, and they put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities wherein they dwelt. 
What happens from there is they continue to serve their idols and they also believe in Jehovah. Over a period of time, the worship of Jehovah sort of percentage-wise eclipses the worship of these other gods. What they end up with is a hybrid religion. It's part idolatry and part the worship of the one true God. That puts the Samaritans in a very unique position on earth because the only people on the face of the earth at that time that worshiped the one true God were the Jews. But now you have this mixture group that believes in the one true God and worships him, but they've dragged all this baggage of other religions into it. That's one of the reasons the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They saw their worship as heretical. They saw them as heretics. If it's not pure, then it's not true. So don't tell us you're true when you're not. That was the one issue. The other issue was this. When this whole importation of other people into the land took place, they intermarried. So the Samaritans no longer had a pure bloodline that was Jewish, Hebrew, whatever. And now they were seen by the Jewish people as half-breeds. Heretics and half-breeds. That's how they perceived them. So the idea was, we are insulted by this. And the idea that you claim to be followers of the one true God when only a true Jew who worships the true God in the true way could be. Therefore, we reject you. So this great animosity developed that was very, very severe. So severe that if you were on a journey, that'd be like, you know, if you had to drive up to um, Magic Mountain and you know as well as I do. The straight way up, there's the 405 freeway. But because you didn't like somebody along the way, you'd go all the way out to the foothill freeway. Go along the mountains and way out there and come back just to get to Magic Mountain because there's people along the way you didn't like and you would never go the straight way. It's, it's absurd almost. But isn't it true that prejudice is a very, very strong influence in our life? And isn't it also true that Jesus becomes a very strong example to us that prejudice has no place in the Christian life? When you see him go to Samaria, when you see, the King James says, he must needs go to Samaria, when you see in the New King James that he had to go to Samaria, that is saying this, Jesus ignored prejudice. Jesus refused to get involved in the conflict of one side or the other, now we're right back to Sunday's message. Why? Because he wanted to reach the people in Samaria with the gospel. Oh yes, I'm sure he had wonderful nostalgic memories of all that he had done as a part of the Godhead there in Shechem. But the other thing pertaining to his mission on earth was this. There were souls to be saved in Samaria and nobody was doing a thing about it because they were too hung up on their prejudice to even care one bit about these people. Jesus pushes aside all, this, all of the prejudice and He says, there's people there that have to be saved. What's the next thing that happens? People are being saved. And we see that in the case of the woman at the well. It's no accident, you know, that in the book of Acts, Philip gets all charged up by the Spirit of God and God sends him to Samaria and revival breaks out. Perhaps that revival had its seeds in the ministry of the woman Jesus met at that well and really went back to Jesus and his love for those Samaritans. It is no accident that Jesus in his parable about the, quote, good Samaritan tells a parable and all these pious 
Jewish individuals walk right past the man who's been beaten up and robbed and will not help him? And who is the individual that stops to help him? Almost as if to say, don't you understand how bad your prejudice is? It's the Samaritan that helps him. And so we have the good Samaritan. And we use that term to this day. You see all of these things surrounding the Samaritans and you understand the great rivalry and conflict that was there and that Jesus is seeking to tear down the walls of prejudice and he becomes an example for all of us. Are you prejudiced? You know, our world has changed a lot. Our country's changed a lot. We don't use terms we used when I was a kid. We've changed a lot. We're more tolerant of each other. But do you harbor prejudice in your heart? Maybe not outwardly, but do you harbor it in your heart? Do you have a, is there a certain kind of person you disdain that you would never think of praying for or talking to? There was no such thing in the life of Jesus. Jesus says to all of us, we are to go out and reach everyone and love everyone and stay untangled from these issues of prejudice that we might reach all men and that by all means we might save some. Well, that's the place of God's timing, the place of baptism. A little bit about Samaria. Could have given you a lot more. I read encyclopedias. I read everything I could get my hands. I know more about Samaria now than I ever want to know. But in reality, I understand what's going on. And I understand why even the disciples are surprised. When we get to the well with Jesus and the woman, and not only is he talking to a woman of all things, because rabbis generally did not, Aren't you glad that I'm not a rabbi? Because rabbis generally did not. And because of all things, it was a Samaritan woman. And you see the lesson there for his disciples is absolutely monumental. And there's more here as we see our Savior wearied from his journey sitting by the well about the sixth hour. But we'll save that for next time. I wanted to lay the groundwork. wanted to get you into this so that this chapter would have more meaning for you for the rest of your life. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you are not prejudiced. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you so loved the entire world that you came to die for all men, that all men can come to know the love of God through you. Lord, may we take this spirit that you have so modeled for us in the scriptures and go forth and be loving, loving and kind with all men. Jesus, may you give us the same concern for your timing in our lives that we see here with you on the pages of the Gospel of John. Help us to take these lessons and to remember them and to live them out and see the blessedness that will come as a result. For we do ask these things in your precious name. Amen.